0: Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Mary Brazelton, author of the new book, Mass Vaccination, Citizens' Bodies and State Power in Modern China. Mary Brazelton is university lecturer in global studies of science, technology, and medicine, at the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge. We spoke to Mary about the striking parallels between China's success in eradicating smallpox and their current efforts in combating COVID-19. The systems of surveillance and intervention that China developed to implement and monitor vaccinations have created increasingly effective strategies to control epidemics, demonstrated most recently in the coronavirus epicenter of Wuhan. Hello, Mary. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you very much. Congratulations on your new book, Mass Vaccination, Citizens' Bodies and State Power in Modern China. What inspired you to write the book?
1: Uh, Thanks. That is a big question. Uh, And there are a lot of different factors that fed into my settling on this question of mass immunization as a topic. Uh, This book grew out of a PhD dissertation that I wrote at Yale University um, in history, Um, but really I had been concerned with uh, thinking about and writing about the history of medicine and public health in China for a long time, Uh, in part because I was trained as a historian of science. uh, And one of the things that I uh, realized quite early on in my studies was that uh, the history of science and medicine in China was a field that uh, was both fascinating and also um, left a lot to be explored. Um, I came to the field at a time when it was really quite a fast-growing topic, and now there's a really wonderful community of scholars um, who are working on different uh, kind of aspects of, of this field. But when I was getting interested in uh, the history of medicine in China, it was really uh, quite an open field in a way that was really quite tempting. and. The thing that really appealed to me about this particular topic of looking at the history of immunization, mass immunization, especially in this place um, in early and mid and late 20th century China, um, was the fact that immunization was a highly technological process that touched many lives across this polity. So it was something that interested me as a historian of science, Um, because on the one hand, I was following a process that involved uh, the development of biomedical tools and technologies of various kinds uh, with significant material dimensions, Um, and yet it was something that wasn't just confined to, um, you know, urban groups or particularly elite groups, this was a process and a procedure um, that was applied Um, to a number of populations, to, in fact, a national population across China, as China became a nation. Um, And so following that process was really compelling to me. Um, And especially because uh, looking at mass immunization gave me a way to think about a medical procedure that was implemented and that really accelerated at a really interesting time in Chinese history, the Second Sino-Japanese War. Um, so the book kind of tries to answer this question, um, how do we see China developing from a nation with quite uh, serious epidemiological crises in the early 20th century? Um, So in 1905, for example, the New York Times has an article calling China the sick man of the Far East, linking political weakness to epidemiological crisis, epidemics of infectious diseases are breaking out across the country in different places. How do we go from that situation Um, to the year 1960 in which smallpox was eradicated or has been declared to have been eradicated by the WHO in China. Uh, Other infectious diseases like cholera and typhoid fever have been controlled largely due to mass immunization. I wanted to understand more about how we see that transformation, um, that significant epidemiological transformation of China's population. And ultimately the answer that I found in the archives and libraries that I visited Uh, lay in extensive interventions that were made in the Second Sino-Japanese War uh, and afterwards, in which uh, first the Republic of China under Chiang Kai-shek and then the People's Republic of China under Mao Zedong um, implemented and expanded mass immunization programs against a range of infectious diseases. Um, So it's a story that had a significant um, element of understanding more about a wide range of people Um, but it also covered a wide geographic range, and those things really appealed to me.
0: Excellent, excellent. Yeah, it looks like to be a fascinating book um, that is also now uh, a uh, topic that's in the news, Chinese public health policy. Um, What are the parallels that you see between uh, the success of the mass vaccination uh, against smallpox versus what's uh, in the news right now and the success Uh, of mitigating COVID-19 in in Wuhan? Uh, That's another great question and I think for me uh,
1: the significant parallels or really connections uh, lie in questions of biopolitics, of the exertion of power over life that we see. Uh, Today Wuhan uh, and the PRC uh, are being praised uh, for success in implementing rigorous measures of quarantine and isolation, as well as rapid development of testing and treatment. Um, and I think a lot of those measures have to do with the establishment of programs of surveillance, as well as intervention, that I think we really see uh, established first in the 1940s with the development of immunization programs that are then extended in the 1950s uh, in, uh, during the era of the consolidation of the Communist Party's reign. Uh, to scale up those interventions, those efforts at mass immunization um, to a national level, to a national scale, Um, not just immunizing against smallpox, but also typhoid fever, cholera, um, tuberculosis in some cases. So I think what we see is uh, both the articulation of an ambition to exert uh, quite extensive power over individual lives um, by making significant interventions. Um, And of course, there are ways in which um, there are very, very different political scenarios. I don't want to give the impression that it's an exact parallel by any means, um, because to do so would be to overlook the work of quite a large number of my colleagues um, covering, covering later periods, but it is really striking. One of the arguments that I do make in the book um, is that um, there is a way, I think, in which China becomes a model uh, against, or you know, it represents one end. Um, of a spectrum in which we see extensive uh, biomedical intervention and surveillance. And that adds up to quite extensive biopolitical um, kind of uh, control in different ways. And so I think you know, the systems of surveillance and intervention that were developed to implement and monitor vaccinations against a variety of diseases, um, those did matter in terms of developing strategies of controlling epidemics. And not just of controlling epidemics directly but also of thinking about the uh, public impact uh, of epidemic control, the ways in which a nation that could be seen to exert epidemic control um, would then uh, gain benefits in terms of global politics. I think that question of diplomatic um, kind of responses of understanding the uh, global impact of epidemic control, um, I think that also is quite interesting to see. Certainly we see now Um, ways in which the PRC is being praised for its uh, responses. Um, And I think uh, there is an interesting way in which we see a conscious strategy to project uh, power as a nation that is capable of demonstrating this kind of epidemic control. Um, So that's something else that's interesting to explore as well.
0: Nice, nice. Now you had mentioned uh, the work of uh, other colleagues that are working on Chinese medical Mm -hmm. history, How do you hope your book will contribute to the conversation, contribute to the research? How do you hope your book will make an impact in your field?
1: Uh, That's uh, another excellent question. And I think that uh, there are a couple of ways that I see this book as contributing to a conversation that's been emerging. In some ways, it adds to the literature that we have that is calling increasing attention to the importance of the Second Sino-Japanese War. So China's part in the Second World War. My colleagues, Nicole Barnes and Wayne Soon have been working on different aspects of uh, the significance of public health um, that emerges in wartime China, whether in the military sphere, in terms of questions of gender. Um, And I think what my work suggests is yet another way in which we see um, the significance of the war and continuities as well between uh, the pre-1949 government of China and uh, the post-1949 Uh, establishment of the People's Republic of China. That's an old argument in many ways that's been made by scholars like Bill Kirby, um, that question of continuity of people and political formations. Uh, But I think in terms of public health, it's quite interesting to see the ways in which developments in terms of public health um, that emerged in the 1940s, uh, later became quite foundational to public health strategies in the 1950s and uh, beyond. Um, So that's kind of one way in which I see Work contributing to kind of that question. At the same time, I think a lot of the most exciting work that's being done now is looking at the history of the PRC and reevaluating the history of China after 1949 in terms of science and medicine. And in terms of what this book does to look at the 1950s as a significant moment in terms of development of things like the patriotic hygiene campaigns, which became a major tool of public health uh, interventions in China, um, hopefully this book will also show that some of the interventions that we think are characteristic of later periods in uh, Chinese history, like the um, interventions of the Cultural Revolution, um, the particular forms of extreme intervention that we might see due to anti-schistosomiasis campaign, which Marion Gross, my colleague, has traced. Um, if we look at the 1950s and specifically at immunization against infectious diseases, that's one way in which I think we see quite an important achievement that is then kind of used, um, that is then responding to in in conversation with other developments in public health. Um, And I think that um, one of the, so one of the arguments that I make in the final chapter of the book is that we see China taking on increasing significance in the realm of global health with the uh, use of barefoot doctors as a model for what the WHO and others come to call primary health care. Um, and that is something that uh, people like Xiaoping Fang have looked at. Um, the argument that I make is that you know we see the barefoot doctors serving as an important model. One of the thing that backs up that model, the thing one of the things that backs up that model is the fact that China has controlled epidemic diseases um, and has been seen to control quite publicly um, not just smallpox, but as I say, other diseases like cholera mm-hmm. and plague. Uh, And so, there's a way in which uh, these different kinds of strands of medicine and public health uh, work together and are placed together um, in interesting ways when we start to see China's participation in global health politics. Um, So, I think there's an interesting way in which to trace kind of China's participation in this realm of global health. And that's something that I hope will really contribute to um, not just Chinese history, but the history of medicine uh, as a field. And it will kind of help articulate a bit more the role that China has played, um, which has been, I think, more extensive in some ways um, than than we've been able to think about in the past.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Within these arguments that you make and you, you, you pointed specifically at, to the successes, uh, burgeoning successes of the 1950s, what arguments within your book may be seen as controversial or shedding new light on, on um, things that people hadn't looked at before? What what are some that come to mind for you?
1: Well, I think that one thing that might be interesting. I'm not sure how controversial it necessarily is, um, but certainly one thing that I try and stress uh, is the importance of borderlands, of thinking about different regions of China, not just thinking about kind of urban centers of Beijing or Shanghai or kind of other uh, centers that have uh, often been uh, studied previously and which have yielded really important. Uh, Uh, and rich uh, historical studies. Um, Because my book looks quite closely at one particular site, that of Kunming, uh, the capital of Yunnan province in the far southwest, one of the things that I try and do is think about different scales of uh, history and different ways in which events in this particular place, um, which has long been considered a kind of uh, a southwest borderland, um, how uh, this particular site At some point in 20th century in China, Yunnan becomes uh, quite exceptional as a site. So during the Second sino Japanese War, um, it becomes um, one of the main provinces that is a kind of stronghold of what's known as Free China. So the Republic of China under Chiang Kai-shek has to move from Nanjing to Chongqing in Southwest China. And so uh, its area of administration becomes circumscribed to Uh, Western China, of which Xin is a part. So in the war it becomes much more central to government because the government is moving to the periphery, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what we see in Kunming is the establishment of biomedical laboratories, of national uh, epidemic control um, institutions that set up shop and set up laboratories um, in this previously uh, quite remote uh, location. And so for a while then, in the 40s, Kunming and Yunnan become exceptional places where work of national importance is being done to develop vaccines, to establish immunization programs that cover as much of uh, cities or provinces as possible. Then after 1949, places like Kunming and Yunnan, they become more regularized. They uh, become a part of a regional and national uh, health administration. Um, So by looking at one particular place over time, uh, we can see how it's exceptional at some points, quite ordinary in others, but in both of those respects being quite valuable as a center of historical study. And of course, I'm not the first person to um, kind of think about that in many ways. You know, there's a very long and robust tradition um, of uh, phenomenal kind of uh, frontier studies, uh, especially in Chinese historiography. So um, as I say, I'm not sure, it's, it's hardly controversial at all to point to this, but it is something that I hope my work can signal for the history of science and medicine uh, in China that it's worth thinking about You know, a variety of places. It's worth thinking carefully about geography and how the local versus the regional versus the national uh, might all work together.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I know we just scratched the surface on the book. Um, but uh, it's great to have a conversation with you, tying in a fascinating history of China that also has parallels with our modern experience right now uh, in mid-March of 2020, um, the role of of Chinese uh, primary healthcare, China being being an exemplar of primary healthcare and looking back at the history of of that um, from the 1950s on. So um, thank you again for for bringing your uh, wisdom and knowledge Uh to this topic and writing a book on this. So congratulations again on Mass Vaccination, Citizens, Bodies and State Power in Modern China. Thank you so much. All right, Thank you, Mary. You take care. All right. You too. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. That was Mary Brazelton, author of the new book, Mass Vaccination, Citizens, Bodies and State Power in Modern China. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30 percent discount on our new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.